Uh, We're going to be in uh, Mark chapter 11 this morning. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead. We're going to jump right in to the scripture here. Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. If you look at that on your phone or also it's going to be on the screens uh, for you to look at as well. And this is the story of begins Holy Week where Jesus is entering into Jerusalem known as the triumphal entry. I'll begin reading here in verse 1. Mark records uh, this day in Jesus' life and says, As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. So they went and found a colt outside the street, tied at a doorway, and as they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? And they answered as Jesus had told them. And the people let them go, and when they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. And many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. And those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And Jesus entered Jerusalem and he went into the temple courts. We're going to be looking at this uh, scripture this morning. For many of you, if you grew up inside of a church, if you were an altar boy, this time of the year, this is a very familiar story to you. You, uh, you are uh, familiar with what is happening here. And so this morning what I want to do is take a little bit of a different uh, angle on it and a little different uh, twist on what, what is going on here. When I was growing up as a kid, one of my favorite movies was actually a musical. And it was a musical that uh, the storyline followed these young uh, boys who lived on the street in New York and they sold newspapers for, uh, to, make, to make money. And so they came up against, uh, they came up against a, a moment where they were fighting against the powerful owner of the newspaper to raise the wages of these young kids that were there. And so they tried to go on strike uh, to stop um, Mr. His name was Mr. Joseph Pulitzer, this powerful man who was there at the time, and try to raise their wages, and he's not having it. And as they, as they try to uh, gain exposure of what's happening here. Well, Pulitzer owns the paper, so he doesn't put the strike in the newspaper. And if the strike's not in the newspaper, well, essentially the strike is not happening for most New Yorkers that are there. So they have to figure out a way in which they can go up against what they perceive as this injustice, this power play against who they are. And so the story goes back and forth. And finally, they find an advocate. And he is a reporter for another paper, and he begins to meet these boys and find out what's going on. He begins to tell the story. And ultimately, in this moment of irony, he leads the boys uh, to Mr. Pulitzer's old printing press, and they take over and they print their own paper, so to speak, and they spread it throughout New York so that ultimately Teddy Roosevelt shows up and, and they get the demands that they want with Mr. Pulitzer. I tell you that for two reasons. One is that there's a deep irony in the story Newsies of how injustice is fought for. And number two is because the Pulitzer Prize is going to be announced tomorrow. You thought it was tax day, but tomorrow is the announcement of the 2019 Pulitzer Prize. And when they give that award out, one of the things they're looking for, both in the journalistic side of things and on the novel side of things or or the other literary aspects, is they're looking for people who are investigating the world, who are finding either broken things or beautiful things that were shattered 
or moments of injustice or places of injustice, and they're exposing those. So even though in this case, Mr. Pulitzer, ironically, is sort of tamping down these young boys, at the same time, he as a paper is going up against some of the uh, heaviest hitters of his day to expose fraudulent charges of J.P. Morgan or to go after the president, Teddy Roosevelt himself. And Pulitzer was known as someone who took a stand for the freedom of the press, for the sake of the good, and for the sake of the virtue of society. It's larger. That's why we celebrate. Um, That's why that award is still given on uh, today in his namesake. But inside of this moment of journalism, there's something that happens that journalists all know this. You learn this at an early age as well in school. And I want to use the tool of journalism to help us look at uh, this story this morning. And that is the five W's and an H. Five W's and H. If you remember this, who, what, where, when, how, and why, those are the ones. Uh, You may have, like, there's a Latin version of this, old school, that, you know, 2,000 years ago, Cicero was using something very similar when he was trying to help understand what's going on at any given moment. Rudyard Kipling has a poem that goes like this that uh, might help you remember it, and he writes this. I keep six honest serving men. They taught me all I knew. Their names are what and why and when and how and where and who. We're going to use these six questions, these interrogatives this morning, to look at the story of Jesus entering into Jerusalem to figure out exactly what is going on here. And hopefully each one of these questions will bring a little bit of a different texture to what's happening in the story and maybe raise some new um, aspects that we can use to drive our lives forward this morning. So the first question is who? Who is a part of the story? Well, uh, in some ways, we just read, that's pretty straightforward. Jesus is there. Um, If you're reporting on this in first century, you're saying there's a carpenter who grew up outside of uh, Jerusalem in a small town. Uh, He didn't didn't come from this great lineage. He was pretty much unknown. He didn't really make it into rabbi school. He didn't get tenure with the faculty, but he is, people are starting to call him a rabbi because his teachings seem to have authority. And somehow in the middle of that, he's gained a following. And that following, those followers, those students or disciples are actually coming with him into Jerusalem as he's coming. So there's another part of who's in the story are Jesus' followers, the ones that go get uh, the colt, the donkey for him. You also see that there's crowds that are a part of this. That's part of who. And so the crowds of the time would be certainly people who live in places like Bethany, as it starts out in verse 1, or live in Jerusalem, so they're residents. But also, because of the time of year it is, there's going to be hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of pilgrims who have come in from all over to celebrate this Passover meal. And so you have, you have pilgrims who are coming in that, that are bringing all the needs and thoughts and perspectives and stories and, and excitement about participating in this festival that are there. That's another part. And then the other two characters that show up here are the religious leaders who they show up a little later but in verse 11 there in Mark it says they're moving on to the temple complex and the religious leaders become a big part of this last week in Jesus's life because he's dialoguing back and forth with them he's talking with them and then lastly you see the last character here is this donkey right Jesus uh, is is choosing as part of his entryway to have he's picking Eeyore right to show up as the character that he has on his team right you're thinking at least tiger, right? At least a tiger, something that's a little bit more Eeyore, really. You're going to choose a donkey to represent you to be a part of this story. So that's who's going to be there. When you're thinking about, when you're thinking about who that matters, but what is actually happening? Well, what's happening, it's very clear, and Mark is, is using all sorts of details, if you pay attention, if we pay attention, to explain that what is happening is the entry of a king, This would be the anticipation of someone who's going to come in with power and going to rescue people from 
the place that they're in right now. So um, the king's entry is seen first in the cloaks. Um, we know from uh, ancient history here that just 150 years before Jesus enters, similarly, uh, Simon Maccabees comes into Jerusalem after just kicking out the Syrians. And what do people do as he enters into Jerusalem? They lay their cloaks down for this majestic entry into the way. It, it, is, it is a celebration of victory that's happening when they lay these cloaks down. Somewhere with the palms as the kids came in uh, to do the palms. And you see this detail that's there, that these branches are a part of that. They show up on coins in first century. And each time they're there, they're a representation that victory or a championship has been won. And so you see a sense of power and of a king who is coming in that's there as well. And then you hear this language, this song that's being repeated, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, or bring salvation to us now. That's what that word is meaning. Bring salvation to us now. And when they're saying that, this would have been a very uh, familiar phrase at this time of the year when Passover is happening, when, when the Jews are celebrating the three main festivals each year, one of the things they do is there's a portion of the scriptures from Psalm 113 to Psalm 118 that would have been sung right outside the temple by the temple choir each year as part of that celebration. And in Psalm 18, you get to this passage of scripture that says, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And it goes on to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who brings the, the kingdom or the administration of David, King David, in with him. So they're singing these songs that would have been familiar to this time of the year, and it's, but it's pointing to Jesus as the king. So that's what is happening in the story. Well, where is it happening? It, well, it says in verse 1 there that it's in Bethany near the Mount of Olives, and then they're moving into Jerusalem. Bethany's just, you know, a mile or two outside of the outer edge of Jerusalem. The Mount of Olives right there, if you've been to Jerusalem, I know many of you have taken a trip to Israel. You can stand on those on that mount, and you can look down at the old city, and you can see the temple, you can see the complex, you can see all those things. So it's just right outside the city, and he's entering into Jerusalem. And Jerusalem would have been a place that sort of, it has a, when you enter into each city, each city has a personality, right? If you go to New York, New York is known for something. If you go to Silicon Valley, it's known for something, right? If you go to Chicago, there's, there's things that come to your mind with each city. Same would have been true with Jerusalem. And as they're entering in, there's stories and stories and stories that are behind the history of Jerusalem. All the way back to Abraham, when God says, I'm going to send you to a place, to a, to a land. And that land is going to be a land of blessing for the whole world. Or Moses, when Moses is freeing people from Egypt, God's people, when they're being released from Egypt, they're going to a land that he's going to show them. A land that's going to be flowing with milk and honey. When King David, King David comes into Jerusalem and he establishes rule and reign and all the enemies run away. It's part of it. Solomon comes and he builds this temple inside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is, is uh, taken over by the Babylonians. And so there's a, there's a time of, of deep tragedy that's also a part of Jerusalem. So when you're going into a place, all of these stories are a part of what's happening as Jesus is entering in. As this kingly entry is happening, that's another key piece. And later on, you're going to see how all these things pull together. So when is it happening? When is Jesus choosing to take this last week of his life, turn his face like flint to Jerusalem, and enter into this place? Well, it's certainly happening in the first century. There's Roman occupation. Roman is ruling. They're allowing the Jews to do what they do underneath Roman rule. But also, it's happening for the Jews during this, uh, this festival they say is Passover, which is a a meal they celebrate 
in order to rehearse the great acts of God's salvation for the people. So they want the next generation to remember. And so they, they walk through what it is God has done with them through meal and through ritual and through song and through readings and through practices so that the next generation will know what God has been doing in the past. So that's who, what, where, when. All those things are there. And then it comes to the next question that I want to ask you. And the next question is why? If those things are there, why is it that Jesus is doing this? And why is it such a big deal? Uh, Those who go to uh, seminary, this why question is the one that if we're not careful, we're going to talk about always, all the time. Me specifically, you know, I'm a Simon Sinek fan. Start with why, find your why. I I like the question why. I like to know why. I like to ask why, 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 why. The five whys. I love to dive into this. So I'm going to discipline myself to give you one explanation for this uh, today. One reason why Jesus says that he's doing this. The crowds and even his followers would have a different answer for why he should be coming in. Their answer to the reason why is he's going to come in and he's going to set up shop. The way King David did, we're going to rule and reign. Jesus is going to do it again. Watch out, Romans, here we come. In Mark chapter 10, you see, you know this is true because the disciples were arguing over who's going to sit on which side of the throne after Jesus establishes it. That just happened in the verses before this. Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Where am I going to get to sit? That's what's going down here. But that's their answer. The crowd's answer is, come on, let's do this. Let's take over. But Jesus' answer shows up in Mark chapter 10 right before as well. And let me read it for you because it says this is the third time which Jesus told his disciples this. And he writes in Mark 10, they were on their way up to Jerusalem and Jesus was leading them. And the disciples were astonished while those who followed were actually afraid. And again, he took the 12 aside and he told them what was going to happen. And he says, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priest, the teachers of the law, they'll condemn him to death. They'll hand him over to the Gentiles. He will be mocked. He'll be spit on. He'll be flogged. And three, they'll kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. John's account of this says, I don't lay, no one takes my life from me, but I lay my life down with the authority that I have. Jesus is saying the reason that he is entering Jerusalem is because there's still a problem that has to be solved. And it's not to move out the Roman occupation. It's not so that the Jewish leadership will have control of Jerusalem once again. The reason is because there's still not a way to God without going through the temple, without going through the priest. There's not a direct route for you. There's not a direct route for me to find our way to God yet. And Jesus says there is an enemy who must be defeated and it is death. And so he stares death in the face and he walks toward Jerusalem knowing that this is what his task is. This is what God has, the Father has asked him to do. So those are the, those are the five, those are the five W's. Now I want to spend the rest of the time here on the question, the H question, the how question. Um, And I think this how question is important how Jesus does it. Because I think not only is it important to always be watching how Jesus responds to things, but I think this is also a place that can help shape and form us. We're not being asked to go to Jerusalem to lay our lives down. Uh, We're not asked to do that. But we are asked to follow Jesus into Jerusalem. We are asked to follow Jesus wherever it is uh, that he might lead. So this how question here, there's, 
there's a lot of hows you could answer, but there's three that I want to show you and I want us to spend our time thinking about this morning and how this might be able to form and to shape us. And the first one has to do with Jesus does this in a humble manner. The second one is he does it with courage. And the last one, he does it with faith. So humility. Um, when, you think about, uh, when you think about the word humility, you, you can definitely associate it with the way in which Jesus is entering in. If he's coming in as king, right, he's going to be on a war horse. He's going to be on a stallion. He's going to be on some sort of great majestic animal. Instead, he chooses this donkey. And as John Stott says, this is a, this is a very intentional self-fulfillment that Jesus is doing. He's stepping into a prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, that says this. It says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt and the foal of a donkey. Stott says that the prince of peace enters on a docile donkey to show the way in which he would lead his king. Jesus here is displaying what humility is like, and he's actually also carving the way for what you and I, how we can think about living our lives. If you are a student, uh, if you're a student of leadership, you like to find out what differentiates one leader from another. You look at some of these executive studies. You you find out what's happening in the place. One of the things that you're going to find that shows up in, in all these different studies, whether it's you know, best-selling author Jim Collins in Good to Great, or whether it's Patrick Lencioni's new book on the ideal team player, or whether it's uh, the culture genius Edgar Schein who has a new book called uh, The Humble Leader. Whatever it is, you're going to find that humility shows up as a characteristic of these leaders in each one of these places. Jim Collins' level five, humility is one of the things. With Lencioni, you've got to be hungry, you've got to be smart, but you've got to be humble. Why is it that when they do these studies, these surveys, That humility is one of the things that shows up as a characteristic of leadership. And would that have been true throughout all of history, right? Would that have been something that resonated uh, with people in different cultures at all times? Or would it have been the, the power, the fist, the strength, the might that people would have respected? Well, Jesus here, as he comes in and enters in humility on a donkey, displays what humility is. He's actually, in a way, he's, he's pulling back the curtain on how God has designed the world. And he's showing us that to be truly human, to truly live into the purpose and the the person that God has designed you to be, you're going to clothe yourself in humility. Because when you do that and you treat other people with dignity and respect, what happens is you, you inspire them to do far more than they could ever do if you just told them to do this and threaten them with fear and pain. But, but humility has, has this contagious effect to it that shapes cultures, that shapes peoples, that empowers people, that sends them out all over the place. And it's one of the reasons why it shows up as a key leadership um, characteristic in business literature, in educational literature, in church leadership. And Jesus is the one who is changing this. Jesus is the one who is introducing this. And we're all trying to find different ways in which we can take on humility. And how we can um, maybe make this a, a family culture. Uh, my wife and kids have been in the state of Texas for the last two weeks at grandmother's house. And they've been enjoying uh, great weather. And they'll call me and they'll sort of mock me and say, hey, we're jumping in the swimming pool. How cold is it there, dad? Right? And as a good dad, I just sit back quietly and listen to them as they, as they uh, give me a little, you know, mess with me just a little bit. But we got a puppy for uh, Christmas. Some of you already know that. And um, the puppy came on these conditions, right? The kids were going to take care of the puppy and they were going to clean up after the puppy. And yeah, you're laughing, you know. 
And I didn't believe a word of it, so don't, don't worry. I, I didn't for a second think that I wasn't going to be the one to completely care for this animal for the duration of his life. But one of the things my kids don't know is, because we've never done this at our house, is we, while they were gone, I thought, good time to take care of the yard, get ahead in the spring. And so I aerated the yard, right? You come in and the guy plugs the holes and he pulls all these little plugs of dirt out. So when they get back from Texas, what I'm going to say is, hey, kids, Charlie's been gone. You guys have been gone for two weeks. I haven't cleaned up after Charlie the whole time. So everybody get a bag and let's go clean up the whole yard, okay? <clears throat> I'm teaching them humility, right? <laughs> Cultivating the value in which I'm preaching about here inside. And that maybe uh, we'll see if I actually, how that works or not in my house. Um, but the point is this, is that it actually takes being very intentional about how to cultivate humility in your life. One of the ways, uh, one of the ways to do that is actually by spending time with God and asking God what he wants to be a priority in your life. Setting someone else as the king, someone else as the one with authority to tell you what to do. Not for you to go shopping through the divine catalog of blessings and add them to your cart on the side. But to say, God, what is it that you want from me? And when you do that, the posture of your life and the posture of your heart changes. Jesus has that posture. That's why when he walks in just a few days later to pray, he says, not my will but yours be done. The first how, the answer to how is he walks in humbly. The second one is he walks in courageously. Um, courage is actually a, a phrase that's not used a whole lot in the New Testament. It, you think about it in Joshua, be strong and courageous, a little bit more Old Testament phrase. Um, here at this time, it's probably more associated with Western philosophy. So Aristotle and company would have talked about courage as a chief virtue, the chief end of sort of a political leader or a strong leader of the day. A philosopher, they would be someone who develops courage inside of, inside of their life. And there's, a, there's a, um, a bishop, a leader, a thinker named N.T. Wright who wrote a book on character, how you develop character. And he specifically is looking at courage. And when he's looking at this, he says, oftentimes we think about courage and we think about it as sort of the soldier that's going out to battle that takes a really stiff drink grabs their sword and takes off to go fight whoever's out there. And that is this act of courage. But he says, no, 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 no. That's actually not an act of courage at all. That's probably closer to an act of folly. An act of courage is a small, deliberate act to put the good of another, the well-being of another, in front of your own. And it is a thousand small, deliberate, intentional acts of courage that makes you into, that forms you into, that reshapes you into a person of courage. So that when the moment of heroism is necessary, you've already formed and shaped a second nature, as it were. A, a immediate response to how it is that you're going to respond in this situation. After he wrote the book, he got asked to speak at different places. And he was actually speaking in New York City about this not terribly long ago. And to the crowd, he says... You know this to be true because something like this just happened in New York. Not long ago, there was a plane that took off from LaGuardia. And as it did, it immediately hits this flock of geese and the engines are completely destroyed. And so, you know, seconds after this plane is off the ground, there is the need for someone to act as a hero and to save the lives of all these people who are in danger. And the pilot responds immediately and maneuvers the plane in this re remarkable way and lands the plane safely inside the Hudson. I don't know if you remember that story or not. 
But when they talked to him afterwards about how he did that in a moment, he's like, well, that had nothing. I didn't get the manual out and start reading and ask. I didn't look at my radar to figure that out. This was 30 years of day after day after day of being an excellent pilot, of paying attention to details, of knowing what's happening, of thinking through the scenarios that are there. And so when the moment shows up, I wasn't an act of heroism. It was just another daily act, deliberate act to put the safety of another in front of my own to care for and do what it is that I need to do. And when you think about Jesus, who's entering into Jerusalem to face Roman persecution, who's entering into Jerusalem to take on the judgment of death, to face that himself, it is certainly an act of courage. He's humbly entering in, but he's also acting in this courageous way. Now you can be courageous and you can be humble, and it doesn't mean everything's going to turn out well for you. Certainly the way that this story ends here, right? For Jesus, it means it ends up costing him his life. And so how is it, third how, how is it that he still enters into Jerusalem this way, with a face like flint? Well, the third thing I think he's doing, the how, is that he's doing this by faith. I think Jesus is actually acting in faith by walking deliberately down into Jerusalem. Um, there is a, uh, there's an author, a thinker uh, named Peter Lightheart. And uh, Peter Lightheart, um, he, for years before he was a theologian, he was actually taught Western Civ classes. If you can remember back to your Western Civ days. And he was teaching all the way from Homer up to Dostoevsky. He's, you know, that's 3,000 years or so of different literature that's there. And he says after years and years of teaching this class, one of the things he noticed is that there was a shift in the storyline. The arc of the stories bend, bent differently at some point in time. Because the older stories used to all be tragic stories. They were tragedies. And at the end, things ended in pain or in loss or in death oftentimes. But at some point along the way, they shifted over to comedies. And by comedy, he just means the story ends in this happy place, right? All the people at the end get married. And they lived happily ever after, right? Somewhere along the way, there was this shift in between tragedy and comedy. And, the, and from his analysis, the best he can tell, he says, I'd like to offer to say that the story in which Jesus reset when he's, when he's entering in here is the key reason why our stories have shifted. It's the key reason why the world of literature has shifted to long for something that ends well, that brings hope at the end that's there. And he says the story of the Bible isn't just a comedy. It's actually, and the name of his book is that it's a deep comedy. And he takes this phrase deep comedy and he says, deep comedy is different than just a normal comedy because in a deep comedy, this, yes, the story starts off good, but it moves into tragedy. It enters into pain and suffering and loss and hardship. It enters into potentially even death in the story. But through that process, as the character, as the adventurer moves about and enters into these places of difficulty on the back end, they don't end up where they started. They end up in a better place than where they started. They end up with a richer and deeper marriage. They end up with a more full and robust story and appreciation for life. The meaning has intensified because they've been through the journey. And he says the arc line of the story of the Bible bends toward something that's not just where it started good in the garden, 
but it bends towards something that's even better, something that's, that's even more beautiful. And so we see a picture of this in Revelation chapter 21. I think Jesus has this vision. He's acting with faith that this life is not all there is. He's acting with faith because he has an eternal perspective that's here. So listen to how John writes about what Jesus is looking forward to in this city. And it's not the city of Jerusalem here that's going to take his life. It's a new Jerusalem. It's a future world which God is going to bring to us. And it says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and will be their God. Verse four, and he will wipe away every tear. There will be no more death. There'll be no more mourning. There'll be no more crying and no more pain. For the old order of things has passed away. And he who sits on the throne says this, I am making all things new. When Jesus enters into Jerusalem, because he knows there's not a way for you and I to be with God directly. And when he enters into and faces death courageously, humbly, he does so with a life of faith. He does so with a vision of something beyond what's happening right now. So that in the midst of pain and struggle, in the midst of loss, and even experiencing death, that he has this vision of a new Jerusalem, a a time when God will dwell with his people, when he will bring heaven and earth together so that God's people can be with God. His presence, this place of Jerusalem of hope and blessing, of longing, will actually be fulfilled. I think Jesus is actually calling us to walk towards this new Jerusalem, to live lives of faith, to take on courageous acts in our day, to stand up for injustices, to live lives humbly, treating others with dignity. So this week, as you enter into Holy Week, as you think about the triumphal entry of Jesus, as you you come to these things, let me just encourage you to reflect on how it is that Jesus has done this and to realize because he did, We don't have to. Because he did, he frees us to be right with God. Because he did, his love for us, the grace that he gives us, allows us to be called sons and daughters and even citizens of the new Jerusalem. We can use our citizenship freely because of what Jesus has done for us. So allow this to be a message to challenge you and to take you into this Holy Week. I doubt that Mark, the gospel writer, is going to win a Pulitzer Prize tomorrow. That's probably not going to happen. But the pain and the injustices that are written about in these awards that are given out tomorrow that are recognized are the same pain and justices Jesus came to step into and to make new. That is the promise and that is the hope that I want you to leave with today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's such a familiar story um, to see... Uh, this announced Messiah, this Christ, uh, this rabbi, this carpenter, enter in on a donkey, have people paraded around him. Uh, but God, we just, we need to hear and see afresh. We need to be moved by your spirit. We need to be, um, we need to be those who experience your love and your grace in our lives. So help us, compel us, inspire us once again uh, by what you have done. Help us not to be the sinners of the story. We pray that Jesus would be the center of the story. 
We pray that our lives would be defined uh, by the things that characterize his life, by courage, by faith, by humility. Meet us now, uh, we pray. Help us to know that we are accepted by the King through your Christ Jesus, whose name we pray. Amen.